Welcome to Band Book Club. Today we're talking about Indian camp and how it can make you a better writer. So some quick background information. Indian Camp is one of the earliest short stories by Ernest Hemingway, who's probably one of the most revered and imitated writers of all time. The basic plot here is that Nick Adams, a young boy, is following his father into Indian territory to watch him perform a C-section on a woman in labor. The story is brutally simple and short, only around 800 words, and a fourth grader could probably read it and have a pretty good idea of what's going on. So why do people still consider this one of the best short stories of all time? Why do professional writers, critics, and literary scholars still hold this up today as one of the benchmarks for great writing? Pretty much because Indian Camp is able to get an incredible amount of mileage out of very, very few words. In only 800 words or so, we get adventure, danger, death, birth, pain, pleasure, innocence, callousness, Mortality, immortality, maturation, light, dark, basically the entire human experience in the span of a BuzzFeed article. So how exactly does Hemingway accomplish this? By using a few simple techniques that you can practice in your own writing. The specific moves we're looking at today are evasion, implication, minimalism, symbolism, and artificial dialogue. Practicing these moves probably won't make you a Pulitzer Prize winning author, but they'll definitely improve your writing. Number one, evasion. So this technique is what separates Hemingway from a soap opera. An episode of The Young and Restless might be dealing with the same basic subject matter as Indian camp, like adultery or childbirth or tragic loss, but the difference is that Hemingway makes a tactical move away from the emotional heat of his subjects instead of drawing extra attention to them like a soap opera would. The trick here is that by moving away from the already dramatically charged subject, you actually increase its impact. Here's an example from the part of the story where Nick's father does the actual operation. Quote, it all took a very long time. That's it. That's all Hemingway gives us to describe the centerpiece scene of this whole story. There's a little context before so we at least know who the characters are, where they are, what they're doing, what's about to happen, but the whole operation happens in just seven words. And ironically, we end up caring about it even more, precisely because of how cold, detached, and realistic it is. Ask yourself if this was a scene in a movie. Would you have preferred a sudden swell of sad music, a montage of every detail of the woman's painful labor, maybe a close-up of the doctor's sweat, or his hands, maybe a monologue about the beautiful frailty of life or something. Those are the hallmark choices, the literary low-hanging fruit, and they'll damage your writing. Good readers will be able to smell the stink of this kind of over-dramatization because real life doesn't dramatize the horrible moments any more than the mundane ones. When you feel the impulse to go to the obvious center of drama in your writing, Remember that you can always play the evasion card and keep the emotional core of your story intact, not asking for attention, but earning it naturally because it actually mirrors real life. The principle of evasion keeps you cool, neutral, 
down-to-earth, mysterious yet profound. Think about if you went to a party. Are you going to be more drawn to the guy who can't stop talking or the guy maybe a little bit more away from the crowd, quietly taking everything in with an air of cool observation? You'd probably be more drawn to the second guy. Maybe even start to wonder what he's thinking. What's his story? Because it's a mystery. Because he hasn't overplayed his hand and that by itself creates an interesting tension that makes you want to know more. Which brings us to technique number two. Implication. Implication is the reason why we evade. So the writer can get out of the way of an already interesting subject and let the reader's imagination go to town, moving where it would naturally if they were experiencing the real thing. You see a rough version of implication in movies. We don't see Javier Bardem murder that lady at the end of No Country for Old Men. The camera just shows him leaving the house, and the viewer puts the pieces together. This kind of implication, or trusting the audience, is a powerful technique in writing, because it forces the reader to actively participate in the story, supplying their own memories and sensory experiences to fill in the gaps, thereby making it all the more real to them. Hemingway is a master of this technique, and used it as an engine to drive most of his writing. Check out Hills Like White Elephants if you want to see him imply a subject so well that it doesn't even need to be named once in the story. Or just look at one of the many great examples here in Indian Camp, like the implicit description, or lack of description, for the Indian mother's placenta. Quote, His father picked up the baby and slapped it to make it breathe, and handed it to the old woman. See, it's a boy, Nick, he said. How do you like being an intern? Nick said, all right. He was looking away so as not to see what his father was doing. There, that gets it, said his father, and put something in the basin. See there? All he has to say about the placenta is something, and your brain goes crazy with wet, bloody, visceral images. The placenta becomes visual, touchable, maybe even smellable maybe dripping or reflecting the dim light inside the shanty. In other words, it's totally real to the reader, and all without the use of a single adjective. Just a very vague but carefully chosen noun. Something in the basin. Hemingway actually coined his own term for this move of implication, calling it the iceberg theory or theory of omission. There's even a segment from Death in the Afternoon where he talks about it directly. Quote, if a writer of prose knows enough about what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows, and the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of the movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. The writer who omits things because he does not know them only makes hollow places in his writing. To practice working this into your own writing, start by learning as much about your subject as you can, while being conscious of the fact that you'll be leaving out probably 80% or more of the details when you actually write about it. Try to discern what details your readers will be able to know on their own and cut them out. You can also try rereading some of your favorite books or short stories or essays and see if you can guess the details other authors left out that they must have already known. As your grasp on implication gets better, your writing will start to have a stronger sense of tension and meaning, propelled forward by an energy that comes from between the lines instead of inside them. 
Before we continue, just a quick interruption. Are you enjoying this episode? If you are, go ahead and like and subscribe. If you have anything to add to the discussion, go ahead and comment down below. Now back to the episode. Number three, minimalism. In some ways, these different techniques bleed into each other, so I'll be as concise as I can with minimalism. Not exactly an actual writing move, minimalism is more of an approach to writing, a philosophy about how it should be done. Following in the footsteps of Gertrude Stein, Hemingway was the first major pioneer of minimalism in writing, and because of his success, it's become the dominant style in American literature, with other minimalist authors like Raymond Carver and Charles Bukowski carrying the torch. There are, of course, many other styles of writing like stream of consciousness or surrealism or extravagant poetic type prose that are all still viable on their own, but you should at least be familiar with minimalism and the principle behind it when deciding how to craft your sentences. You don't have to adopt minimalism as your own personal style, but you should always look at what you include with a minimalist attitude, ready to cut out any words that don't serve your story. You probably understand it on some level already. In a nutshell, it's the concept of less equals more. But maybe more importantly, how and when to use negative space in your writing like an artist would in painting. Literally every sentence in Indian camp can be used as a model for this approach. Take the first sentence, quote, at the lake shore there was another rowboat drawn up. A great opener that immediately gives us a concrete image, a sense of place, movement, and intrigue. But what exactly makes this a minimalist sentence? Well, besides the fact that the sentence is just plain short at 10 words, you can see the telltale signs of minimalism by how it treats its nouns and verbs, with close to zero modification or embellishment. The lake shore is not stormy, sandy, wet, dry, beautiful, or ugly. It's just the lake shore. Just like the rowboat isn't painted or cracked or encrusted with barnacles, it's just a rowboat. The only extra information we get about it is that it's one of two rowboats drawn up, which hints us that a journey is about to start. We didn't even need a single adjective to pull us in, which isn't an accident either. Minimalists will only use an adjective if it's absolutely crucial, but a good writer of any style knows that overusing adjectives can be dangerous. I don't know a good way to tell you to practice minimalism because it's really more of a stylistic choice that'll come down to your own personal taste. But you should always keep its kill your darlings attitude in mind when it's time to edit. Big extravagant symphonies usually aren't minimal pieces of art, but the best composers still left out a lot on purpose, knowing that anything not essential detracts from the overall piece. And in that way, any good artist uses a microcosm of minimalism. If you decide to use it as the defining feature of your style, just be conscious that your stuff doesn't read as derivative of Hemingway or Carver. You can be minimalist and still bring in another unique aspect of style to your writing. Just use it more as a guiding principle. Number four, symbolism. Symbolism is one of those floaty, esoteric things that your professor or art people will talk about, and it'll sound boring and pretentious. But in a really reduced nutshell, it's just about bringing imagism into your prose, making literary allusions or using repeated metaphors to build images. Symbolism is embodying a big idea through the image or action of something smaller. 
While definitely a technique used in good writing, it's not really something you can just learn. Symbolism is more of a way of thinking, looking at different archetypal things in the world like the sun, moon, death, birth, ocean, trees, whatever, then drawing your own unique connections between those things and somehow weaving that into your story. But you gotta do it in a way that doesn't seem heavy-handed. You can definitely study symbolism and become more adept at recognizing it in movies, books, or poetry, but outside of that, I don't have an actionable tip for practicing it. If you're interested in the theory and history of symbolism, you can always read Carl Jung, probably start with man and his symbols. But if we're just looking at Indian camp, there are a ton of great examples as well. The primary one being the way Hemingway uses light in the story as a multi-layered symbol for understanding, maturity, hope, and who knows what else. We also get the counterpoint of this symbol, darkness, as a way for Hemingway to show Nick's state of unenlightenment at the beginning of the story. The Indians and Nick and his father start the story off rowing down a river, another image with allegorical weight, but we're not talking about that now. When they're rowing down the river anyways, Hemingway makes a point of letting us know that they're in the dark. We know that every word in the story is here for a purpose, and the purpose of dark in Indian camp is to equate with something like ignorance, unknowing, unenlightenment. This symbol follows through to the operation scene where everyone is in the dark and bad-smelling shanty, where the rough stuff happens. It isn't until after Nick witnesses the horrible, traumatizing, life-changing, violent scene in the shanty that we see him emerge out into the first light of day. Ding, ding, ding. The light isn't just light. The light is his epiphany, his broadened sense of perspective, his shift from boy into man. I know it sounds silly. That's why you have to write entire stories around this stuff to get away with talking about it. The rising sun and light continues to the end of the story, where Nick is at his happiest with his father on the boat, feeling a moment of immortality, presumably when the sun is at its highest and brightest. That's basically how symbolism works, picking details that are believable in themselves like the sun, but also somehow reflect or embody the deeper themes that you're dealing with in your story. Number five, artificial dialogue. Here's a little secret about good dialogue. It doesn't actually sound the way people sound when they talk in real life. Good writers write their dialogue in a way that's very unnatural but still sounds believable when you're reading it because it's actually being covertly used as a tool to do different kinds of work in the story. Don't look at dialogue as a place to capture exactly how people talk because the average human conversation is rough, rambling, and usually not interesting to read. Instead, use dialogue like Hemingway does as an opportunity to show thought, develop a character, advance the plot, or to subtly land one of the big points of your story. Here's a great example of dialogue doing this kind of work in Indian camp. When Nick is complaining to his father about the woman's screams, we get, quote, Oh, Daddy, can't you give her something to make her stop screaming? asked Nick. No, I haven't any anesthetic, the father said. But her screams are not important. I don't hear them because they're not important. So from just this short exchange, we get the whole mindset of both characters. Young Nick is upset and not used to suffering, and his father is very used to it. Maybe too used to it, to the point where he almost doesn't even see his patience as human anymore. This simple exchange of dialogue gives us mood, character, contrast, 
internal struggle, all while moving the plot and painting the picture of how much pain this woman is really in. The trick is that on the surface, it sounds like a believable back and forth between a father and son in this situation. Let's look at one more piece of dialogue from the end of the story where Nick and his father are talking on the boat. Again, it sounds enough like a father and son talking so that you buy it, but really Hemingway is using it to drive home the final drama, the big thematic punch of the story, which is, I don't know, something like the overwhelming reality of life and death that Nick is becoming aware of. Quote, Do ladies always have such a hard time having babies? Nick asked. No, that was very, very exceptional. Why did he kill himself, Daddy? I don't know, Nick. He couldn't stand things, I guess. Do many people kill themselves, Daddy? Not very many, Nick. Do many women? Hardly ever. Don't they ever? Oh, yes, they do sometimes. Daddy? Yes. Where did Uncle George go? He'll turn up all right. Is dying hard, Daddy? No, I think it's pretty easy, Nick. It all depends. While this exchange drives home the main themes beautifully, it's also doing work to set up the final image of the story, to frame Indian Camp's most important line of all. Quote, In the early morning on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure that he would never die. This ending line wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been narratively and emotionally set up by the dialogue. It's something you wouldn't have bought as a reader without all the extra heavy lifting Hemingway put in to not just the dialogue, but the symbols, implications, evasiveness, everything that makes up this short story. Indian Camp still holds up today because it shows what can be accomplished with a story when all of these techniques are working in tandem, when each line, each word is doing the maximum amount of work it can do. I hope this video helps you to push your own writing further, or at least to appreciate more of what's going on underneath the, so to speak, iceberg here. Thanks for taking the time to look at this classic controversial piece. And remember, if a book is banned, it's worth reading. <laughs>